over the top was sumptuous, and Sanchez's skills were sublime. Oh, Rodman! Rodman! The number two pick scores for the Spirit! In the This is Annie Elliott, back once again to talk to you about the Washington Spirit. And I have with me, as always, Andre Carlisle. How are you, Andre? I am good. I'm a little tired, but we have a lot to talk about, which doesn't sound like that should be the case Yeah. at this point of the <laughs> season, but uh, it, but we do. Yeah. Um, and also, of course, Ella Brockway. How are you, Ella? I am good. Yeah, particularly newsy few weeks in the NWSL preseason landscape. So um, happy to be here and talk about it more. Absolutely. Um, so the first thing to talk about is something that I'm really looking forward to. I think maybe you guys are too. The CONCACAFW Gold Cup, which is going to be our chance to see some of our spirit players uh, in action, although not with with the team. Um, Casey Kruger and Trinity Rodman were both called up to the U.S. Women's National Team. They will have their first game in the cup on Tuesday at 10.15 p.m. Not my favorite. Um, against the Dominican Republic. <laughs> Night Owls Unite. This is going to be a fun tournament yeah. for the Night Owls. <sighs> we'll see how that goes for me. <laughs> um, then Gabby Carl was called up by Canada. So she will be playing with them um, their first game Thursday versus El Salvador. I think that's at 9 p.m. And then Riley Tanner has got another call up with Panama. They will have their first game Wednesday versus Columbia at 7.30 p.m. I'll be awake for that one. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. This is the first one of these, maybe not ever, but certainly in decades. So I, I think it'll be a fun tournament. I'm looking forward to watching, you know, some of the games that are at a reasonable hour for me. <laughs> How about you too? Yeah, I think assuming that this is a combination that we're going to see a lot for the Spirit this season, I'm definitely intrigued to see if we see Trinity Rodman and Casey, uh, Casey Kruger, excuse me, uh, together on the field during any of these games. Um, I did a quick football reference check before we hopped on here, and there was only one game in which they've played together at the, on the field at the same time, and it was uh, the second April friendly last year uh, against Ireland. They both came on for a half, but, you know, so in the chance we do see them playing together for the U.S. during uh, this Gold Cup, that would probably give us the biggest hint so far of what that partnership could look like for the Spirit. Um, And I know we've, you know, discussed on here and other people have talked about how this is one of the things we're most looking forward to seeing this season, uh, this NWSL season. So that's one thing from my, like, Spirit perspective that I'm keeping an eye on during this tournament. Ooh, I love that research and and fun because I am I was kind of thinking like I wonder if the national team would do that because you know we used to be no longer are the United Spirits right we used to be that that is apparently now Gotham they had seven I believe the uh, national team players which is just outrageous um, I just a little hint just a little note to our Gotham friends didn't go so well for us <laughs> it's it's a little disruptive when you have that many players gone uh from time to time so just throwing that out there it is an olympic year anyway have fun um but yeah i do think that that's really cool it should be interesting to see that relationship develop i really am looking forward to that as part of the spirit casey kruger is really good at getting high but also really good at remaining sol- solid defensively and so just that interaction should really even help Trinity not have to come back as deep or as far. And even that could be super, super helpful for the attack. But, you know, even outside of the U.S., I'm really excited about Gabby Carl. I don't know what Canada was doing with their roster drop. She was listed as a midfielder. That could be fun if that actually happens. I don't think it will, but it could be fun. Uh, and then, of course, Riley Tanner. It's always kind of fun to see her play with Panama as well. So, yeah, I'm excited about this tournament, especially because it's not just CONCACAF. You have four CONMEBOL South American uh, Federation teams in there, which are really, really cool. Yeah, definitely going to be a good tournament. I think Carl and Tanner are so interesting, and I hope I hope we see both of them get some some time to play because – Tanner, especially, you know, she's she's played a lot for the, the Panama national team over the last year um, yeah. and hasn't gotten really any regular season time yet with the spirit. Um, but they've, they've kept her around for another season. So I'm kind of anticipating we might see more of her in, in this upcoming season. So 
could get kind of a preview of where she is in terms of, you know, just her game uh, this week. And also where she might play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she can play multiple <laughs> positions. And I think that was the thing with the spirit in there. And they're like four four two diamond thing. There wasn't really space. She wasn't really a wide midfielder and she wasn't really a 10 and she wasn't really a center kind of striker, central striker. So now that it seems like we'll be out of that formation, hopefully we do get to see her pop up and where she pops up will be interesting. Definitely. Yeah, I think Andre kind of mentioned it before too, but just like looking how I'm so excited for this tournament and I'm glad that it exists in a, a format that I think a lot of women's soccer fans have been calling for for a while, but it is, you know, it starts this week, so or this coming week, so starts February 20th and then stretches all the way up until a potential final or a, a final potential of which teams would be playing in it on March 10th. So that's like a, that's a lengthy chunk of, the preseason that some of these teams are going to be without or all of these teams are going to be without players for. So you'd look at the spirit that's depending on how far the U S and Canada in particular go, that means you could be spending a chunk of this preseason without your starting forward, your starting left back and your presumptive starting right back or center back or wherever Casey Kruger falls into that defensive back. So that's not ideal. And obviously, you know, this is happening to every team, we mentioned Gotham before, and that's the unideal part of having so many, you know, international players on one club. Um, but, you know, it, it adds another kind of tricky component into an already like a bit uncertain, bit tricky preseason for the Spirit, particularly so far. But um, overall, like, I think we all probably agree that it's good that we're seeing this kind of level of international tournament in the women's game. But it does complicate, you know, how you approach an NWSL season and yeah, I think that's a good point. I was going to agree. Um, and I think that's why we've seen Gotham bring in like 10 additional players in their training camp. Um, haven't seen the Spirit bring anybody else in. And I think that we were already a little concerned about the the numbers they have. They really don't have any room for error. <laughs> so, I mean, well, I think we'll talk more about that later. But it is a good point that with, you know, even just four players out, I think we'd like to see them maybe bringing in some more NRIs or something. But not to detract from the point of tournaments happening, it's cool. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Um, so I think our next kind of topic was, was um, I, can, I can say words really well. Uh, Michelle Kang has finally, after I believe nine months of uh, waiting, gotten uh, approved to be the new owner of the Lyon women team, women's team. Uh, I'm not going to try to say Olympique Lyonnais. Lyonnais, French, man. Anyway, you said you're not going to, and then, and did, then I did so it. <laughs> you did, and you like did it well. So yeah, that's shout a win. Out. I, I try. To, I say Lyonnais is like mayonnaise, which is not right. <laughs> who who could say? Um, <laughs> so I think this is interesting. I mean, we talked a little bit about it when it happened, um, but I was wondering if either of you had any kind of thoughts or insight on why. It took so long for her to get this approval. So the deal went through. The initial hopes when uh, she first announced, I believe it was April of 2023, that she first announced that you know she had reached an agreement to purchase Leon and then had hopes that it would finish by June of 2023. Uh, what the holdup was exactly, I don't know. I The response that I had been getting for months was just that it was being approved by French authorities. And it admittedly is a bit of a unique situation in which you're buying a majority stake in a women's team that also falls under the umbrella of a men's team. And as we know, OL Group, which is the the holding company that owns the OL men's team and is controlled by uh, John Texter, who owns also a lot of other stakes in clubs around the world. So that OL group is still holding a minority stake in the OL women's team. So like they're, they're still present in there. And I think they're, and you know, at that press conference, they were very open about preaching that this was the first of its kind transaction to happen for any French team. Um, so, you know, I have no inside information other than it seemed like it was a pretty complicated deal with a lot of moving parts and lots of things happening on either side of the Atlantic Ocean. So um, it just seemed like, or at least we'd been hearing that it was just being approved by French authorities. That was at least what we'd been hearing. Yeah, that's basically all I ever heard too was the French authorities part. But I think, Ella, you did a great job of of talking about how complex it is just internally for like OL group and everything. But also, 
Remember, they had a stake in Seattle Rain, which is OL Rain. That had to go as well before Michelle Kane could take over because you can't have, own multiple NWSL teams. So I think there was that probably complicated it even further. And then Leon Men just so happened to be in a bit of a relegation scrap for a little while. I think they're still quite low. So uh, I know there was a lot of kind of trying to figure out what players to, to bring in, what players to kind of get out and all of that. So I think there was just a lot of turmoil on that side of, uh, of things. And I don't know if they really prioritize this as well. And of course, who knows what level of intricacy the French authorities quote unquote, uh, needed to, to understand or get, uh, get involved with to be able to approve the deal. But I'm going to guess without any direct information other than this was hella complicated from multiple angles. <laughs> and so my guess is that's why it took so long. Yeah, I'll just point out that. So in September of 2023, uh, John Texter, who is the owner of, or he, he leads OL Group and he's the majority owner of the men's team, announced that he was planning to raise 300 million euros and sell non-core assets of the uh, of OL Group, which included OL Rain. I guess that fell under his non-core assets. But um, so that was one of the things that was, you know, complicated by the OL men's team. I don't think they qualified for the Champions League. I feel like I, that was a plot line uh, last this past season. Um, and then he was also involved. He's also a co-owner, co-owner of Crystal Palace in the Premier League. And uh, there's some uncertainty over whether he's ex- might be exploring a sale of that club as well. That came out in January of this year. So I think, you know, in the in that particular multi club network there's a lot of moving pieces and parts that may have pushed some of this to the side or not even pushed it to the side but just made it take a long time to get approved and not to uh you know talk any shit or anything but uh sounds like he's killing it (laughs) a couple clubs you know struggling moving coaches around you know fighting relegation the move they made at crystal palace on the men's side did not go well uh, they brought back Roy Hodgson, who, I mean, hopefully, and I think he was ill recently, so hopefully he's okay. But either way, he's out already. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Whatever. Glad Michelle King's taking over Leon Women. They don't really need that uh, sort of leadership, I would say, even though, as as Ella mentioned, she's still he's still going to be affiliated with the club as the overall group. She's got 52%, so they still are a minority owner. But she is the decision maker. Sounds like a better deal for Leon Women. <laughs> I think so. And I, an interesting thing about this transaction going through is we heard more from Michelle Kang than I maybe we ever have on kind of her, her vision for how these teams are going to work together, her priorities as as an owner. I mean, she's always talked about like, you know, her first, first priority is, is, you know, improving the product, making sure the players are supported so that the soccer is strong, that, you know, they that's what she views as like, you know, that's the product is, is the players, how they're performing. Um, so we knew that was a special emphasis of hers, but she did, I believe a press conference and a long sit down interview, which are both available on YouTube in English um, on Leon's website. If, if anyone's interested in checking them out, but said some very interesting things I thought about kind of her, her plans for the teams. Um, one thing I noted was she said uh, there could be a, a tournament or at least a game, I should say. <laughs> We called it the Kang Cup um, between, you know, Leon and Spirit and maybe London City Lioness as well. Would love to see that at some point. Um, but was there anything that you two were particularly interested in in what she had to say about how these three teams are going to kind of work together? It was interesting to listen to the press conference. I do think that, like, Michelle Kang said it, that this was her first press conference of any kind. Uh, and she doesn't really like the fact that she's kind of, like, become a public figure which is fun because I'm like, you know, the, the style fits, hit the timeline. You know, we, she she didn't really love that I knew she was in Mexico once until that that funny story. She was like, are you stalking me? I was like, I just was on Twitter. I saw a picture. What do you mean? So like, it was funny. It was it was very tongue in cheek. But yeah, she's not not too familiar with all of, with all of this. But it was interesting to hear her talk about it. And every time that we've asked, we've kind of gotten, you know, the kind of the the bullet points, you know, trying to do this at scale. You know, it's important to do these sorts of things at scale, this level of investment at scale, but we didn't really have too many like details a little bit as to what that actually meant. And it sounds like what it means is, and probably why Don Scott was tempted to come over from Enter Miami um, and take this job in the first place is that it seems like it's not like her base is Washington Spirit, 
But what she's sort of doing is developing entire programs that can be replicated across many different clubs. And when Michelle Kang was kind of talking, she was saying, like, I understand, like, the multi-club ownership model in men's football doesn't go well. They usually hate it because it's usually corporate. It usually strips away club and brand identity, strips away some of the culture. Of course, there's a clear hierarchy involved as well. Like you think of the city group, Manchester City is the shining jewel. Nobody else is going to compete or get any higher than Manchester City. And they know that that's where all the resources are going to go. And so it can be a little frustrating on that side. But what Michelle was kind of saying in that press conference is, that men's teams, given the TV contracts and all the deals, they get a lot of money to be able to develop that infrastructure individually. And she says it's difficult to do that because those similar uh, that similar amount of dollars doesn't exist in the women's game yet. The NWSL just got a pretty big deal. Uh, it sounds like the, the WSL over in England is on the verge of getting a pretty big deal as well uh, domestically, and we'll have to see about other leagues. But it's not there for every club and every league. So the goal seems to be to develop this infrastructure and be able to replicate it on multiple clubs so that more uh, women's footballers can take advantage of the facilities, the training, the methodologies, the performance, all of those things, and help increase them um, and help them become better athletes and get the kind of you know standard professional treatment and, and, and access that they deserve. And so from that standpoint and the way she broke it down, I was like, okay. I get it a bit more. So if if you were wondering or still wanted to know, that's at least a, a measure of it that I was able to glean from watching the full press conference, which was kind of interesting and intriguing watch, I'd say. If you're if you're if you're I won't even say if you're bored, if you're interested and have like 33 minutes, I think is about how long it was, might want to take take a watch because it was kind of interesting. Yeah, I think that's a really good summary, especially for, you know, not just spirit fans, but NWSL fans who have kind of been hearing from Michelle Kang over the past, I guess, two years. And, you know, we hear a lot about the vision and it's kind of hard to see that vision until it's like, oh, here's a training facility or, oh, here's like an expanded staff. It's kind of hard to articulate all the, or even just, you know, see it for ourselves if we're not the people, you know, I don't know, overseeing the plans for the training facility or whatever. I think the other thing that um, in terms of, you know, what now that this deal is official, what can we see look to see beyond just maybe these teams will play a game in the future? Uh, when I've talked to Michelle Kang, she seems to think that there are things that both of these teams can really take from each other. Or both of these clubs can really take and learn from each other. So um, I talked to her a few months ago and she had mentioned that like something like an academy structure is something that the... Uh, Leon club or that Leon and French clubs and European clubs more broadly, like something that's very built into their soccer, their women's soccer culture and just their soccer culture in general, that may not be as existing as infrastructure here in the United States. So that could be something that, you know, the spirit could take from that. And then on the other side, when you look in the inverse, there is a lot on the business end that she speaks about and how these European clubs can look at the NWSL for um and you know take things on the business end and learn so you know she's been pretty upfront about her belief that soccer women's soccer specifically is something that can be profitable and that she's not just doing all of this to you know support women in sports as an act of charity she genuinely seems to believe that this can be a successful business and it seems like she's eager to turn some of those insights into you know how to build up a brand how to build up a team into uh an entity all of this stuff that has you know, been done in the NWSL and in some of with some of these European teams, but maybe not in the league entirely or with every single team. And that seems like something that's in start. I know she mentioned in the press conference about uh, the possibility of a stadium uh, or just conversations about a stadium for Leon and mentioning some of the, you know, just attendances that are garnered around Europe and then how that doesn't always translate into, uh, you know, something that Leon is seeing and that seems like a, a a more concrete thing than we've heard for a while so that was a very long-winded answer and I hope any of it made any sense but yeah it's it's hard to tell yeah no it it made sense and I think it is important to also mention the attendance factor because if you know anything about Leon e- even if you don't they despite Barcelona's recent dominance Leon women are the most successful club women's team 
ever, I would say. Um, they used to complete now the structure, the format of the Champions League, a little questionable uh, a few years ago. Uh, so they really got like a, they only had to win like, I think four games, three or four games to actually like win the entire thing. Now there's group stages and all of that. So it's a little bit more difficult, but still Leon has, I don't even know how many. Um, I think it's close to double digits or maybe even a little bit more um, uh, Champions League titles. They've won the French League 900 million times, which is an exact number. Um, so like there is, they are really successful, but that hasn't been translating in terms of attendance. Part of that is they split, you know, not not unused to that as a Spirit supporters. They split time between two stadiums, one, the Groupama, which is the main stadium where the men play. And the other one is the training facilities. I think that has a capacity of like 1,500, but they also draw much less than that, such as when they played Paris FC in January, which was another Champions League team. And you would assume that two French teams, you know, Paris included, you know, that would be a, a pretty marquee matchup, even though you, even if you expect Lyon to win, I believe the official attendance number from FB ref was 625. So there, there, she mentioned about doing studies and trying to find out like what are hindrances, what are, what's even the audience, you know, there, who's going to go to games, how are they marketing? Are they reaching that audience? So there's a lot to figure out, but I was kind of surprised to hear that. And the reason why she's looking at building a stadium is because it sounds like neither stadium is really all that accessible um, for the fans to be able to come out and watch the game. So I think she said something between a 15 and 20,000 uh, seat stadium. So something somewhat smaller, bigger than what Kansas City's doing for whatever reason, they decided to cap that at 11,000. Okay. But yeah, so there seems to be a lot going on there, which is both exciting, but also from a spirit perspective, like, Hey, what about that training facility? Yeah, that's, that's still a work in progress seemingly. Um, <laughs> But I, I wanted to chime in also because I, I agreed that a lot of the attendance stuff was interesting. She said that was her primary kind of initial goal on the business side was to increase in-stadium attendance. And like thinking about that, I hadn't heard that specifically from her before, but that is seemingly what the focus has been at the Spirit. You know, I don't think we've seen as much – I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I think what we've seen from the Spirit is a focus on like – marketing the team to local fans. Um, we've seen a lot of ticket deals. We've seen, you know, individual games will have deals. And then they did like the two for one club seats. Um, they are doing the like smaller season ticket packages where you can get five or six games, which I don't think we'd seen before. So I, I really do see that emphasis here already on, on increasing um, attendance. And obviously it has paid off for the team over the last year. So I just thought that was an interesting kind of confirmation and I'm curious to see how how well it works there and what what she'll be bringing back and forth in terms of building that audience game to game. And the last thing I'll add unless anyone has anything else they want to say about this, but but we we probably should move on to more spirit specific stuff, but I'll just add that if you were excited about this from a spirit perspective in terms of maybe we can get some Leon players over to the spirit and it would be fun and great and everything would be exciting. Uh, the league has decided that that this pump the brakes on that a little bit. Um, some of it is still possible, but it's a lot more complicated than it was before these new rules came out, which are related to or under the umbrella of related party transactions. And so basically this is multi-club ownership. What are you going to do with these players? So number one, no exclusivity agreement shall exist between an NWSL team and a related party club. Understand that one. Two number, there are more than these, so they're laid out, but I'm just reading kind of the highlights, the ones that would directly affect the spirit, I think, in Michelle Kang. Or, uh, two is the number of players loaned or transferred to or from an NWSL club must not exceed three players at any given time during a season. So that's a pretty tight restriction of three. And both inbound and outbound loans, players' salaries do count against the cap. So if you loan in a player from Lyon, whatever they're making is what's going to hit the cap. And as you know, there is no cap over at Lyon. So who knows what some of those, what some, the kind of wages. Plus, of course, you also have the dollar is a little bit behind the euro. So that also would probably add to it as well in terms of bringing a player over and having their uh, wage count against the salary cap. So 
we might not get to see, you know, shout out to O.L. Rain when they were O.L. Rain. They got to get Eugenie Lisa Mare. You know, they had um, Jennifer Maris on and uh, and Sarah Buhati came over as well. Like they they had quite a few players and it was fun and exciting, but doesn't look like the spirit are going to be able to replicate the exact same thing. We'll see if they choose to do hey. anything. I was going to say, maybe we can add like one Leon player to the wish list. <laughs> just, just give us one as a treat. Um, but yeah, I think maybe time to take a little break and then talk some more NWSL stuff. Okay. So um, I think we wanted to talk a little bit more about, I don't know, just the NWSL trading and transfer stuff um because obviously the spirit since our last episode have not brought in any new players um haven't seen any new international signings from them this year and we are seeing other teams i mean i think a lot of teams are bringing in international players but especially um the fc and i, I feel like andre you want to give us a little summary of of what's going on there yeah, Bay FC have decided to spend all the money, um, which is exciting, but also like, hey, hey, <laughs> this is what everybody was scared of for like Angel City. And also Michelle came coming and everybody was like, oh, no, we're going to become like the WSL and be such a top heavy league. And then that's not what happened. But now Bay FC are like, mm, we kind of want to like break the records that San Diego started doing and made the playoffs for the first year, won the Shield in their second season. Bay is like, what if we did all that in our first season? So it sounds like they're trying. Um, they brought in, and I uh, the conversions make the numbers, you know, uh, you, whatever that little squiggly approximate. Uh, so whatever, you can do the math on your own. But uh, Asisat Oshawala, who is a striker from Barcelona, believe that was one twenty-five to 150000 That's the transfer fee that was paid to bring her over. Dana Castellanos, 250,000. I think it was actually 250,000 euros. So it was probably even a little bit more uh, than that. And when you do the conversion and 750,000 for Rachel Kundanaji, who honestly, given the reports of add-ons and everything else, that could crack 800 easily, I believe. Um, I don't know what the incentives are, but I've heard of incentives like number of games played or whatever, a goal scored, all those things. So we'll see how, I mean, <laughs> given there's not much transparency, maybe we won't see, but we know the numbers at least uh, 750 and probably a bit more and probably going to be closer to 800, I would say. And so, yeah, if you're keeping track and good at math, that's over a million dollars in transfer fees in one window for an expansion team. Wow. And I guess I don't know what their limit is because obviously the rest of the league is limited to five hundred thousand dollars net in expansion fees so if if i'm sorry in uh, transfer fees so if they transfer someone else away they can kind of credit that back to their to their total for um incoming transfers but i don't know what it is for expansion teams is it a so, million is it limitless like what is <laughs> i believe that each expansion team got an extra five hundred thousand and then I do think there's also money that they got either from making trades or whatever, um, draft picks, whatever they ended up charging other teams, bringing that money in. I think they can use that money as well to kind of pay down. But it, ultimately, you are correct. They are not, neither club, Utah or Bay FC, are beholden to the specific interpretation of the 500,000 net transfer threshold that every other established club is held to. So uh, good job owners, I guess I'll say <laughs> in that situation. I don't really know why they would do that. guess they didn't know how ambitious Bay FC were going to be, but there they are. Yeah. And I guess I should clarify that it's, it's not a hard cap, it's, but it is a pretty stiff penalty that if you yeah. exceed that 500,000, it starts to cut into your salary cap. Yes. Um, why did they do this? <laughs> do, we, do we have any thoughts? I mean, is it just a poor owners have too much power in this league? Like, what's going on here? Ella, do you want to give your thoughts on this? Because I honestly can rant about this for about an hour and then another six hours. I was going to say, I feel comfortable seating the floor to Andre on this discussion, who knows a lot more about this particular uh, facet of NWSL transfers and spending than I do. And so I'm more than welcome to, <laughs> more than happy uh, to see this one to you, Val. I just don't understand. I don't understand doing this now. 
I don't understand doing this at the number in which they did it, 500,000. This is the the the, tran- the global transfer market is not something that the NWSL is in charge of. They don't really set it, even though AFC just did set a record. Um, but we don't know. It's it's an unknown, right? We don't know what the market is because women's players, women's footballers, have been undervalued for such a long time. And now that there's money, there's impetus for owners to spend and actually treat it like a real market. We don't know what the actual market is. So remember like a couple, maybe two, three seasons ago, Chelsea broke the record for Pinella Harder. It was like 330,000 euros. I just told you Bay FC spent over 750,000. So like that's continuing to grow and we don't really know. Like I, if say a player like well, Lena Oberdorf just just moved, but that was a inter that was a domestic transfer. So I think that was two fifty. That Bayern discount, it's a good job if you can, you know, be a German player and then just decide you want to go play for Bayern Munich. You'll you'll go for a discount. Um, but like Sophia Smith, you know, Selma Paraluelo, like some of these really young players who are super good and, and look like they're going to be just excellent for the next decade. No idea what they'd go for right now. I, I said that we were getting very close to the first million dollar transfer. And I really thought it was going to happen maybe in the next window. Might still have to happen uh, because I don't think Utah, unless they can pull something crazy off, I think they're the only ones who might be able to do such a thing unless, you know, a, pre, a, a European pre-summer deal is announced. But anyway, basically, and, and where I'm frustrated is, This kind of harkens back to an era of the NWSL that really tried very hard to protect owners financially, to not incentivize spending. And that doesn't seem to be where we are. You just signed a big broadcast deal. You just brought money into the league and and ostensibly into other teams. Many, many owners have come into the league with a lot of money. BFC, again, spending a lot of money. Michelle Kang spending a lot of money. Angel City's owners have a lot of money. So like you have a lot of clubs that are well-financed. Chicago just had a big takeover. Ricketts family has a lot of money, right? So like you have a lot of money into the league. I don't understand capping this at 500. And the only way to bring it down is to let go of talent. You don't want talent to leave this league. Even if it's intra-league, still, you don't want a player to have to go to another team just because, well, we can't keep you. That's a shitty reason. And so, like, I'm frustrated in terms of it from a squad building standpoint. I'm frustrated in terms of the message that it sends in terms of the financial, um, you know, uh, ambition of uh, owners in the league. And I'm frustrated about the fact that they seem to have no real understanding of what the actual women's market is. 500,000 is nothing. It's nothing. In fact, it only took a month for that to already be outdated. Now it's super outdated because if another team wanted to make the Kundanji deal, they'd have to get another 250K in at least to cover it so they weren't taxed above that threshold and, and had money from their cap kind of siphoned off under that tax. I don't understand this. It makes no sense. <laughs> it makes me very frustrated. I mean, I, I agree with you completely. And it- I understand there are a lot of rules in this league to protect parity, and I like parity in the league. I, I really do. But yeah. this this seems like it's not really impacting parity of the players or the team because you're still subject to the salary cap. You're still subject to the roster rules, no matter how much your ownership is shelling out for a transfer fee. I just don't see the necessity of it. It's it's so it's a weird decision, and I mean you're right that. I mean, it seems with the, with the market the way it is now, the Spirit could maybe get one player. I'd like to see them do it, but they haven't done it yet. But yeah, they're, they're, the market is going up so much, they're really limited in terms of who they can target and bring in um, from, from another league. Any other thoughts on this? If I talk more, I'll just continue <laughs> to rant. So like, I've got nothing. I just, I, I hope this goes away. It was one of those things that would probably agree to because, well, we got to do something like, Transfer fees are going to get out of control. Like we really don't want to have a club get into some sort of like financial turmoil because they ended up paying more than they could for a player and whatever. Like I, but it doesn't come across as being like a safety net in terms. It comes across as being way more restrictive. And if it was just a safety thing, I'd understand it. But if it was a safety thing, that number wouldn't have been five hundred thousand, right? Like you would have put it a little bit higher so that you could say, okay. We're like, we're as a league, as our owners, we're not going to spend like a million 
like each window. Like that's not, that's something that we probably shouldn't be doing in terms of the financial viability of the league, because it still is a young league, especially in the new era that it's in. The new era is super young. So you do want to make sure that there are wise decisions being made. So I get it from that standpoint. 500,000 is the thing that just really, I have a hard time with that because it is, it is literally in the market that we don't even know what it is yet. It's already not enough. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about, like, to me, that could be accomplished with, you know, league approval, some kind of financial disclosure. Like there's other ways for them to make sure that the teams are not overspending. So I I think we're, (laughs) we don't like this rule. (laughs) Yeah. I was just going to add that. I think, you know, as we discussed this, the, the league is what going into its 12th season. Yeah. 12th full season that we're starting. So it is still a young league and it's, you know, in addition to that, it's, as you know, both of you have mentioned, it's a league that has in more ways than just like parity, like uh, protecting parity and protecting like transfer fees and like protecting ownership groups, financial state. Like it, it's been so defensive and self-protective of itself, uh, you know, for valid reasons because of other leagues that have collapsed in this country or, um, you know, for worse reasons that why this league has tried to be so self-protective. So I do wonder, you know, and this is not the, obviously this expansion, uh, this round of expansion with what we've seen with Bay FC and Utah and how much resources, not only how much resources that they are working with now and putting behind players as we've just talked about, but also, you know, the expansion fees that were way, way higher that these two clubs had to pay, uh, that I think San Francisco or Bay Area specifically paid. Um, was really skyrocketed from what San Diego and uh, Angel City paid. And, you know, we've got Boston coming in in 2026. And then I think Jessica Berman has said that they want to continue keep to keep pursuing expansion. So does that, you know, trying to make a really even super uh, paritable, is that a word? I don't even know. A, a league that prioritizes parity in the way that, you know, so many of these other American sports leagues do like is that something that we continue to see Uh, and this is leading into broader conversations about you know the future of the nwsl in the global sports landscape and stuff but you know as this league continues to pursue expansion further and further which it seems like it is game two how does this how how does this continue to happen how does this change at all and you know that's why i think the future of the nwsl of all the sports leagues and the in the US like is always one that I've been fascinated by and that I will continue to be fascinated by because of its standing both in this country as a league that models itself based on other American sports leagues, but also plays, you know, has an integral space in this world market. I think it's, yeah, there's, we could go on for this (laughs) about like an hour, but I'll wrap up there. So yeah, I think let's move on to our next topic. Um, We want to talk a little bit about, just kind of the spirit style of play. Obviously, we haven't seen anything yet, um, but we are anticipating some changes based on you know, bringing in um, the new coach, Yona Hiraldez, and just kind of the way that Mark Kerkorian has talked about how they want to see the team play. Um, and Andre, this was your topic idea, so I'm, I'm definitely going to make you talk more about it. But Because <laughs> I don't even know really where to start us off here because it, it all is a little speculative. Um, but how kind of what should fans expect to see like what what kind of changes are we talking about when we say they're going to do more of a a barcelona style or you know are they even going to do that style i think that's kind of what what we're talking about here yeah and i think that's why i put it on there because i do think it's fascinating um i think it's it would, and i i don't believe anybody has this expectation so i'm not actually calling anybody out i'm just stating this as a fact that i think it would be very silly to believe that we're going to play like Barcelona after an offseason of just hiring a Spanish coach and eventually getting in the coach of Barcelona in, you know, four or five months. So, like, that's probably not going to happen. But what can be taught? How does it apply in the NWSL, a very different style of league where possession, the things you do to keep possession are a little bit different than the things you would do to keep possession if you were playing in, say, the Spanish league or on the Spanish national team or whatever. So, like, again, are they prepared for those tweaks and changes and what they're going to need to do um, in terms of being able to implement a possession style? You know, we talked to some of the 
um, rookies and we've had a couple pressers and talking a lot about moving without the ball, um, finding spaces and everybody kind of has to be on the same page. Multiple players do to provide those passing options because each pass changes the picture. Um, and as the defense moves, it changes the picture as well. Um, and so being able to recognize the space and not only just space, but passing angles, it's it's cool to hang out in space, but if you don't have an angle for the player on the ball to get it to you, then you've eliminated yourself, right? So great, you found space, but now you can't, they can't play the ball to you. So there's a lot to learn. And as we know, spacing, spaces are tight in the NWSL. They close quickly. Players are super athletic, but also I think the one thing that I think that, it, that the U.S. does not get enough credit for is that, yes, we we prioritize as a kind of from youth groups on competition and physicality. Right? Those are the two things that we really do really well. And But I'll also say that doesn't mean that players aren't talented enough to also be technical. Um, we've seen that with multiple players in the league, what they're able to do on the ball. I even think of a player like, not to talk about a player from another you know, team, but I think about somebody who has a very different style of play, like Lola Bonta, very technical player, super technical player, but has been playing in the NFL for a long time, but doesn't really get the credit as like a technical player because there's not that level of like super physicality, right? She has a super competitiveness, unless you heard her mic'd up and she's very silly, <laughs> but she's a very fun, funny player, but it's just a different style. And I do think multiple can exist. And that's kind of what I'm interested to see. Like who on the squad is going to really love this transition, going to be able to use elements of their game that they haven't been able to because it's just been about, particularly last year, run, close the space, get the ball, play it forward, you know, and not to simplify it as that much. But when you're looking at juxtaposing the two styles, this kind of like that's the polar end of one and the polar end of the other is keeping the ball. And there are different elements to keeping the ball. People keep saying like tiki-taka. Well, is it going to be tiki-taka? And also like I would also say Barcelona don't necessarily always play tiki-taka. That's not their thing. Like it is an actual set style of play, but there's also positional play within that that's different. Like there, it's, it's a lot. And so it's not just trying to figure out for me like when are the spirit going to play like Barcelona? <laughs> to me, that's not the question. Just how how different are they going to be playing? What are they going to be told when they get the ball at their feet, when they're facing pressure, what are they going to be able to do? What does their buildup look like to goal, right? How do they defend? What do they do when they win the ball? Those sorts of things. But also for me, it's like, who's going to flourish, right? Who's going to be excited about this? I'm putting a lot of money on Andy Sullivan. So really, this is a long-winded way of saying, I think Andy's going to have a great year. Yeah, I feel like you summed it up really well, Andre. And it's, you know, We've thrown around style, the like phrase style of play so much. I've been throwing it around. The spirit throws it around when it talks about this higher. And it it does feel correct to be saying like we should not be expecting or we should not be expecting this team to come in and like play like Barcelona or be a carbon copy of Barcelona in that NWSL or be the Barcelona of the NWSL. I mean, it, you know, it's probably fair to say that Geraldes didn't you know, come into Barcelona and himself invent a whole new style of play. Like it, I don't even know how fair it is to say that players have come to Barcelona intentionally or specifically for him. He's definitely a part of that. Yes. But it's also, you know, the reputation and um, he took over a club that has a, a reputation for a type of soccer across all his ages and teams that he's gotten familiar with it now. And that's obviously part of the appeal of bringing him to the NWSL. So I think, the more realistic kind of thing to take away from this is, or take away from this whole discussion is, you know, what is this going to do or what can this bring out of the players on the spirit? As I think we've all, you know, kind of agreed in this conversation as it's happened over the past few months. What, and that's something the spirit has stressed as well. You know, like they talk about what uh, Geraldes and even Adrian Gonzalez, what they've been able to do with their specific teams in Spain, but also, how they've been able to develop players. And, you know, a few podcast episodes ago, we mentioned what Harald does in his coaching role has specifically done to, you know, whether it's positional changes or, you know, finding a way for a specific player to really thrive in a way that maybe they hadn't before. So, you know, we're probably not going to see Barcelona level play for 
a multitude of reasons, but are we going to see, could we see a player like Andy Sullivan really thrive in a way that maybe we didn't see last season? Could we see, you know, a whole host of other players succeed in ways that we didn't when there was, you know, maybe a less exciting, uh, a style of playing that was less suited to the strengths and uh, of certain players and wasn't, you know, creating the most exciting or entertaining brand of soccer. I think that's a realistic expectation to have rather than just, you know, oh, they're going to come in here and, you know, all of a sudden be the Barcelona of the United States. I, I, I think that's not even tempering expectations, but it's just, you know, having a, a, an understanding of what bringing a coach like this means. Yeah, I, 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 that's why I'm kind of, I'm super fascinated by it because, you know, we did bring in a lot of draft picks, you know, that was really needed for, for depth reasons. There are some players that were let go and some players that were traded and I hate that. And kind of even kind of going back to the squad buildings that you're like, I'll always, however well or poorly this goes at the spirit, I don't know. I don't really have any guesses until we actually see what they're attempting to do and how the coaches are going to go because I still think it's going to be a, an adjustment for them. Not to go back to this game because people from the NWSL will talk about this a lot, but remember that, what was it, the, I think it was an ICC, a Women's International Challenge Cup situation or Champions Competition, I forget what the, the two C's stand for, but like remember when Houston Dash played Barcelona and Barcelona was like, why the hell are y'all continuously running at our faces? This is not how we play. And they, it took them a while to adjust, like a long time. And I think that game got super chaotic, which, of course, played right into Houston Dash's hands, especially that version of the Dash. They were really chaotic no matter what. Um, and it was different. And so I do think that the coaches are going to have a lot to adjust to, um, from Adrian Gonzalez to Geraldes when he gets here. And are they prepared for that? What are they prepared to do about it, right? Those are going to be really questions to answer as far as how this goes. But really kind of looking at the way like a player like how Hirschfeld plays super like good at her like off ball movement providing an option really clever likes to play switch play a lot you know but usually on the ground off those long passes that kind of loop and take some time to get to the other side of the pitch she likes to play on the ground more than more than most I think especially in that defensive midfield position and that's kind of interesting because ball on the ground is very much a a a component of this Barcelona style kind of play when you use the ball on the ground, either to break lines, whether it's the midfield line or break through the defensive line. That's something that's really interesting. So I'm looking at a player like her. Obviously, um, shout out to um, my good friends at Shea Butter FC. They were able to sit down with Croy Bethune and Trinity Robin recently um, when they were in uh, San Diego, I believe, for their training uh, camp. And Trinity said that she's very focused on the offseason and, and during this year on her movement off the ball. Huge, Tr like huge. So there are too many times when she just stays like really wide so they can roll the ball to her in space. And then it takes her a lot of effort to even get anywhere near the box. And usually she has to go deep. And so then the crosses either get caught by the goalkeeper or they're not as impactful as they could be. So for her to be able to find spaces around, like within the width of the box, to receive the ball at her feet so she can make one move, beat one player, and then have a decision to make, cross, low cross, shot, whatever, whatever she's going to do in that situation, it will elevate her game quite a bit, I think. So like, there's a lot to be excited about, but I think the key is just like, we're going to have to see it. <laughs> like we don't, this is, this is a massive undertaking. You don't really go from, I think the spirit had the lowest pass completions percentage in the entire league last season. Yeah. <laughs> and part of that is probably because they had a lot of the players who weren't really congruent to that style. So you could say this style is more closer to what they want to do, but also a lot of roster turnover as well. Six draft picks, a lot of, a lot of players not with the team. Uh, Sam Staub, who I think would have been absolutely perfect in this system, really sucks that she's not here. Um, you don't find left-footed rangy passers and passers she can go in the air or on the ground um and that's another thing that i'm like we it would have been perfect to be able to have her but we don't so who who fills her spot you know there a lot of questions a lot of questions but intriguing to see how it plays out and just sucks we're gonna have to wait a while yeah i mean i think both of you kind of talked about Geraldo's not getting here till june july who knows when and, and how that's going to impact it but i you know i think um 
the interim head coach, Gonzalez, just I think he just joined the team. I think he may have joined a little later than they anticipated. We saw photos of him with them here in, in Washington, D.C. area um, just maybe this week, this past week. So I, I think things may be a little rocky at the beginning of the season. Um, but we, I mean, we, I think, got a chance to talk to some of the players in, in a few media availabilities. And, and they've been talking about the same things that you kind of you mentioned, especially Andre, about um, just just learning the space, learning where to anticipate each other, learning how to get a lot of numbers available for, for passing when you're on the ball. Um, so I find that really interesting because it seems like they're developing really like the cerebral part of the game. Um, so hoping that will kind of pay off early, early on. Um, but yeah, I think it could be a little rough. I, I also noticed, you know, the, the low passing percentage, but I, if we're going to call players, we think might do well. I've got a, a Terry McKeown pl- plug. Um, good passer, good on the ball, really good movement. If they're going to build out of the back, she's going to be really central. I think I can see the argument, you know, as we talk all this through and, you know, we spent earlier parts of this podcast wondering why aren't there more players being brought in? Why aren't there, you know, bigger names being brought into? And I can, whether you agree with it or not, I can see the argument that it makes sense to kind of just kick this process into gear with the pieces that you have now, which seems to be happening with Gonzalez joining the team for training and starting to see how those changes start to be implemented and waiting it out until the summer to kind of evaluate how everything's going. We're, you're probably going to have to account for fewer international absences than you did last season, which certainly seems like that could be the direction of how this is going. And that could be a boost to the spirit, as we mentioned, how much that uh, impacted the state of the season last year. And, you know, it's kind of tricky. Like, uh, we keep recurring with this theme of waiting and patience, and we just got to wait and see what this team looks like in June and July. And especially, and I, I get why that brings a feeling of, you know, a bit of antsiness, a bit of disappointment, especially after the sort of whiplash of last season that came with firing coach only one year into his project and that giving off a sense of perhaps a lack of patience or a lack of time uh, to wait for what this club wants its results to be. Whereas now, you know, just a few months later, you're kind of squarely in, we're going to have to wait for a little bit and sit in this transition mode for a bit longer. So that's definitely like where we were or where Things seem to be in October feel very different than they seem to be in February. And I'm sure they will feel also different in July. But um, yeah, that that's not really an answer to anything. That's more of just like an uh, observation about the state of things. And it's it's tough to like sit here and just be like, ah, well, I guess we're going to have to wait and see what this all looks like because there's not many opportunities. There aren't many opportunities to get a sense of what all this will exactly look like before like the first opening match of the season. Um, But it's tough and it is good to hear from the players that we are able to talk to, whether that's, you know, Brittany Ratcliffe, Ashley Hatch, Casey Kruger, Trinity Rodman. They seem enthusiastic about the changes that have been made and that are continuing to come. And I do think we will be able to see more players on this team succeed in a way that, you know, is good for them as soccer players and is good for people who like to watch entertaining and exciting soccer. Again, waiting game a little bit. Yeah, and I'll and I'll be honest, like I'm enthused by this because I'm a big old nerd. <laughs> so like I'm kind of enthused to like overanalyze every game. I'm gonna try like obviously when you do that, you run the risk of like making too many generalizations. So I've never really been about that, especially because data sample size, all that's gonna be super limited starting out. So you can't do that, you know, no matter how it looks, game one, two, five, whatever. Even last season, Mark Parsons was saying, judge us by like the 10th game, which ultimately maybe he shouldn't have said that because the first 10 games are very good. And then, you know, it kind of went the other direction. Um, but like, yeah, I, I still think that a project like this, not only is it going to take time, but it's like building and it's kind of going to be fun to follow. Like, what can they do in game three that they couldn't do game one? What can they do in game five that they couldn't do in game three? Like moving on, what are they building? And I think that was really where the spirit were a little bit frustrating last season is it didn't feel like they were building on something, you know, result after result. Things started off well. And then, of course, you don't expect that to stay. If they would have stayed the way they were, they would have been in, in competition for like the shield, right? Because they were leading the t- they were on top of the table for a while. Um, but still, just looking at style of play, 
different situations they can put a defense in and then learning, oh, we can do this. Now, how do we do that? You know, in the next game, how do we make this even more impactful? Like those little things are going to be super fun to follow. So I'm like really intrigued, but I understand fan angst. I have my own level of angst and what I think is actually going to be possible year one of this transition, particularly with the interim coach coming in so late, um, which is kind of why I really wanted like get another midfielder in who knows this system to help facilitate a little bit. But again, still haven't heard any rumors about any of that happening, but still, regardless, I mentioned before, I still think that people sleep on the technical ability of U.S. players. And I think they will see in Croy Bethune that that's very silly. But I also think you could end up seeing it in Andy Sullivan and Hal Hirschfeld and McKenna Morris, you know, some of the other players that came in through the draft. Yeah, there's there's some pretty unique ability um, that I think the players have. And so we'll just like it's going to be fun to track. Definitely. So I think if we're done wildly speculating. <laughs> I mean, that's yes. all we can do. <laughs> um, we'll just do a little bit of news slash upcoming news and then say goodbye for now. Um, Spirit have announced their theme nights for the year. Um, I think 12 of the 13 games have themes. So sorry, Orlando pride. Um, they've got, I'm not going to give the full dates and, and teams they're, they're playing against. Cause it's, you know, you can go check it out. It's just a lot of information, but they've got a homeowner opener. I'm sorry. Women's empowerment night, kicking women's cancer night, salute to service, pitch side pups, Juneteenth pride, DC ward day, disability awareness, CVS health day, Hispanic Heritage Day and Fan Appreciation presented by Snickers, which was also the last time, uh, game last year. Um, so I was going to ask, what uh, if any of these are you guys excited about? I personally am going to shout out DC Ward Day. I really like to see the team trying to build a, a connection with the city and particularly with with the wards that are you know where they play. Um, so really like to see them kind of trying to build a, a better community connection. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm always excited for Pride Night. And I think after last year, um, I remember Jason Anderson wrote a really nice story about how last uh, last Pride Night was like the spirit's biggest ever. And they kind of went all out with the flags and the events and everything around that. So um, that is always one that I circle on the calendar. I did forget that Spirit uh, that Snickers was like a jersey sponsor, so I was kind <laughs> of like taken aback when I saw Fan Appreciation Night presented by Snickers, and I was like, "All right, they are one of like the the jersey sponsors." But I wonder if there's like, you know, was the Fan Appreciation Night sponsored by Snickers as well last year? Not that I can remember. I just I remember them being so. a, a sleeve sponsor, or maybe it was. I don't know. Maybe I'm misremembering, but I thought I'll have to look it up. Yeah. I didn't get a free Snickers. If I was so, going to say, this seems like an True. opportunity for some kind of, you know, cross, some kind of promotion involving Snickers candy. And that's in October, right? Is there like a candy corn possibility Ooh, that could oh, be done here? Yeah. Oh my God. Why? You just made it bad. <laughs> <laughs> I had to bring it up as soon as I was like October game or maybe it's September. I don't remember exactly when, but a, a late fall. Snickers flavored candy corn. Is that what we're thinking? I'm trying to come up oh, with some ideas oh. there. <laughs> yeah. Snickers um, would be a good flavor. I mean, chocolate peanut. Come on. Yeah. Well, I'm going to move us on from those thoughts. It's my favorite candy. Disgusting. What? Snickers. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's talking a good about candy corn Snickers. I was like, please no. Um, yeah, I'm I'm excited for a lot of these. Um, Juneteenth is going to be very interesting to see what they do, how that pulls off, like what they, who they kind of reach out to. Um, I would be great. They could reach out to Rose Room Collective, you know, the uh, supporters group for people of color. So that would be fun if they were involved as well. So hopefully they've done that already. If not, if you're listening, give them a shout out. Uh, but I think it will be important to get that right. I like the idea of celebrating it. It is important. Uh, but getting it right is the most important. And so um, I'm excited to see what they do. And not to say like, I don't think they'll be, they'll do this correctly. What I'm really like, I'm interested in how they approach it because last year they, the game day experience was like super elevated in a lot of different ways. You know, you mentioned Pride Night and what uh, Jason Anderson's piece was a really good kind of historical chronization. Got that word out. It's always a tough one for me. Um, of trying to like figure out like how this team got to this point because it was such a stark contrast from the spirit of old, which was great to see. 
and just seeing everybody wrapped in those giant flags, uh, pride flags, which were like not just like rape, but like it, it was the all inclusive like flag. It had everything, which was amazing to see. Um, so like, yeah, I'm excited to see many of these pride nights and how they can kind of build on what they started last season. Looking forward to all of them and really just the season starting, but um, our other, not even really news, but just a f- foretelling of news is the, the NWSL has teased that they will be revealing jerseys on February 27th. And I guess that's all jerseys, all new jerseys for new team or for the teams. So I, I'm curious to see how they're going to do that and whether teams are going to r- release all their new jerseys at the same time. I, I just, I don't know how they're going to do it all in one day. Yeah. It seems like a very MLS approach uh, to this where you just say like, here's everybody's new shirt. Um, and maybe that helps highlight some of the great ones and buries some of the mid to not good ones. Cause if those leaks are anything to go by, there's going to be a lot in the, I don't like this category. And, um, Maybe the good ones will outshine that or, or at least balance it out a little bit. I don't know. So prepare yourselves. I'm thinking about it. And Bay FC got away with announcing theirs already. Well, yeah, because they announced like a white shirt. So. Oh, it's it's <laughs> light gray. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, look at I'm, I like Kit Reveal Day, so I'm excited. But uh, yeah, I do think they're going to be potentially some stinkers. <laughs> All right. Does either of you have anything else you want to talk about today? Nope, I'm done. Thank okay. you for joining me. <laughs> it was a delight. Um, and thanks to everybody else for listening. Um, we will be back soon, hoping to bring you some more news and maybe some uh, player interviews, hopefully, before the season starts, which is just a month away. But um, that's all for now. See you guys soon. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Remember to like, subscribe, review, and rate five stars. You can follow us on Twitter at Hey Spirits, and as always, go Spirits.